This is Reset. I'm Esther Yunji Kang, and for Sasha Ann Simons, it's Friday. You know what that means around here. Time to make sense of the biggest local and statewide stories in our weekly news recap. More than 3,000 migrants are still sleeping at Chicago police stations while they wait for shelter. With the temperatures dropping, volunteers helping them say they are not prepared to handle the cold. A delegation of officials from Illinois is in Texas. They're trying to learn how cities near the border with Mexico are accommodating this growing influx of asylum seekers. St. Louis may soon take thousands of Chicago's migrants. A Chicago alderperson says she and an aide were assaulted today when protesters swarmed them during a demonstration in the Brighton Park neighborhood. So here to dive deep into those stories and much more is Melody Mercado, Black Club Chicago reporter covering the Loop, West Loop, River North, and Gold Coast. Welcome, Melody. Thanks for having me. And we've got Monica Ang, Chicago reporter for Axios. Hey, Monica. Hey, Esther. And WTTW Chicago politics reporter Heather Sharon is back with us. Hi, Heather. Hi, Esther. First off, Heather, startling news uh, involving an alder and opponents to the city's plan to uh, place so-called winterized base camps for migrants. Um, there's, you know, there's a plan to place one in Brighton Park on the on, uh, on the city's southwest side. W- what do we know? Well, there was a big protest yesterday morning, and alderperson Julio Ramirez went to talk to the people who were protesting this decision, which was made maybe by the mayor's office we don't know it hasn't been confirmed but there is a community meeting on tuesday so she went to talk to the protesters and the protests got out of hand she says she was attacked her aide was hospitalized and block club chicago's colin boyle got really sort of heartrending footage of her being pushed and shoved and yelled at as both her aide and police officers attempted to get her out of the situation Uh, She says she's okay, um, but I think it is an indication that the debate over sort of where these quote-unquote winterized base camps um, has really gotten and just the level of vitriol that has greeted sort of every aspect of the humanitarian crisis involving the, the migrants. Yeah, Melody, jump in here. What are you hearing about what happened to Alder Ramirez? Yeah, I know. I think the the video that Colin had shared was very widely spread on um, social media and kind of was the really was the, the newsmaker of that so that people could see what was going on. Um, again, we know that the uh, proposed location, it's on a privately owned lot at 38th Street in California, um, and it's not set in stone yet. And, you know, We'll learn more at the community meeting, but there was a, a, a another community meeting and another uh, part of town for uh, a possible another location at Halstead and 115th Street in Roseland. And residents there, when they had that community meeting, were not happy at all. And so um, that maybe has paused any further conversations about that so maybe that meeting is possibly foreshadowing what we could see on on Tuesday here but I I think that um, city officials have been very strong in saying that if there is no winterized base camp the alternative is that people are sleeping outside because they frankly are overflowing at the police stations right now. Monica what are your thoughts on all this I mean how shocked were you by by what happened? 
I mean, unfortunately, I wasn't super shocked because it's just a continuation of a lot of pushback we're seeing from communities every time something is proposed for uh, migrant shelters there. And it just, I think, exemplifies the rough road ahead for the Johnson administration as he tries to figure out where to house the migrants. Well, you know, in the statement that Alder uh, Ramirez wrote, she says, I call on the mayor's office for more transparency, accountability and more local involvement in the decision to in the decision making process to explore more options for establishing permanent shelters and reevaluate if tents are an appropriate solution at the site. I mean, what do you make of her turning this around and, and asking for more info from, from the mayor's office and for more local involvement in the decision-making process? Well, so the issue here is typically this kind of development or anything would require sign-off from the local alder person. That has sort of been Chicago's tradition of, we call it aldermanic prerogative. But the Johnson administration has simply said um, the crisis is too large for us to allow local alder people a veto over whether a shelter, whether it's in a brick-and-mortar building or a tent. We just can't, we can't operate that way, which is why you've seen uh, shelters open up in places like Greektown and Ukrainian Village over the objection of the local alder person. And that's no difference here. I think um, Alderman Ramirez's frustration is is that many of the people who were at that protest were specifically blaming her for Mm. this decision when this was not anything that came out of her office. She told me that the um, owner of the private lot sort of proposed it as a site to the Johnson administration and the Johnson administration has been working through the process to figure out essentially if this vacant lot which had housed tractor trailer trucks could Mm -hmm. actually house as many as a thousand men women and children now sleeping um, at police stations and in tents outside police stations so I think she feels particularly aggrieved that uh, she didn't ask for any of this she didn't seek to involve herself or her ward in this but she ended up quite literally uh, bearing the brunt of these protests. I mean, it is getting colder, and you mentioned those uh, migrants sleeping outside. Melody, have you been uh, able to witness some of this? Yes, we um, at at Block Club, we have several reporters, uh, myself included, that have been covering the the migrant crisis, and we've seen um, for weeks people sleeping outside and now that it's getting colder and not to mention in the rain we've been seeing a lot of rain recently um and unfortunately the people sleeping uh, outside are either in tents or they don't have a tent they're sleeping on a soaked mattress outside um and now it's getting colder and it's still raining and eventually that rain will turn into into snow but yes we've seen people sleeping outside and they're desperate to get into um a a shelter situation and get out of sleeping on the floor of inside a police station if they can find space or you know on the sidewalk heather uh going back to you what are you hearing from other alders about this 29 million dollar contract to shelter migrants in these winterized tents so it's worth a com- it's with a company known as garda world and they are one of the few companies nationwide that can sort of set up these massive tents so it they are described as yurt like structures where you have private sleeping quarters but then communal eating and you know bathroom facilities with showers Um, And 
this firm has sort of also find it found itself in the middle of sort of the debate over the effort by Republican governors to send these migrants to democratically controlled cities and states. And at one point, the firm had a contract with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, of course, is running for the Republican nomination for president um, to move migrants from states to different states. Now, that the firm has told me that that contract was never executed, but there are many members of the city council and progressive political organizations who object to the whole concept of putting migrants in tents yeah. as opposed to, you know, finding them a more permanent shelter in a in an actual building. And then there are people who believe that the city of Chicago should not be sending taxpayer dollars to a company that would have even considered working for Ron DeSantis and sort of moving these migrants as pawns. So it's a really difficult situation. And the Johnson administration has said, look, we're going to make sure that these migrants are cared for, that their dignity is protected. And we are simply out of options because they say, as Melody said, it's going to start snowing soon. We have to find somewhere to get these people sheltered from the weather. That's our obligation. And if you have a different suggestion, critics, we are happy to hear it. Yeah. And Monica, you know, in your reporting, what kind of reactions are you hearing? I know you mentioned that people are just opposed to anything, anything for for migrants. But what are you hearing out there? I mean, again, it highlights what a tough position Brandon Johnson's in. I mean, he's hearing from his alders. He's hearing from the public every time um, there's a city council meeting at the beginning. People stand up and say how, you know, why are you setting aside millions for this group when you haven't invested in these neighborhoods? It's a really tough position, you know. Oh, uh, I, I try to set up the, in this building, I get protested. I try to set up tents, I get protested. So it's, um, and, and I'm hearing it from alders, and alders are hearing it from their constituents. So until we get the funding, is what they're all saying, from the state and from the feds to do this properly, um, it's it's going to be a, a a crap show, if I can say that on the radio. <laughs> A delegation of Chicago politicians headed to, to Texas this week in an effort to come up with solutions uh, to the migrant crisis. Heather, fill us in on who went and, and where they went, what they did. Well, who didn't go was Mayor Brandon Johnson, who was originally scheduled to go, but pretty much at the last minute said that there was just too much on his plate here to cope with the migrant crisis for him to go. So instead, he sent two of his closest aides, uh, a deputy mayor for immigration, Beatrice Ponce de Leon and First Deputy Chief of Staff Christina Passion Zayas, who've really been leading the Johnson administration's approach, along with two alder people, um, both freshman aldermen Lamont Robinson and William Hall. And now they have gone, along with Alderman Byron Sicho Lopez, to various cities in Texas where the migrants are sort of starting their journey to Chicago. And sometimes that's by plane, sometimes that's more often by bus. And what they're trying to do, I think, is twofold, is that they want the nonprofit organizations on the ground in Texas to know that conditions in Chicago are rough and that it is going to get cold and that people, if they don't have boots and coats and gloves, should not be sent to Chicago because they will be in for a world of suffering. And if they do get on a bus to Chicago, they should know that they will probably be sleeping outside. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a sense among Chicago officials that people in Texas did not understand that and were perhaps mm -hmm. being sold a bill of goods, sort of encouraging them to get on a bus. The other thing they want to do is they want to figure out why federal 
immigration relief money is being spent by nonprofit groups to pay for these bus and plane tickets to Chicago when Chicago is basically screaming for more federal aid. So their point to federal officials and local officials say it does not make sense for you to spend federal money to send people to Chicago where we have no federal money to take care of them. So they're hoping to cut through some of sort of the red tape to sort of improve communication. But the fact of the matter is, is that um, people, if they're given a bus ticket to places where they think maybe they'll have a better chance of sort of starting a new life in the United States, I think the, you know that is a really powerful argument. And whether or not they'll be successful in sort of you know stopping people to come from Chicago, I think is very much an open question. Yeah. So it sounds like it's not just like a a, a, a trip to learn things, but to communicate some things as well. Right. Well, one other possible solution uh, to this crisis is potentially sending asylum seekers who have arrived in Chicago to other cities. Uh, this is actually a story I covered this week. Um, I want to get all your reactions to this. St. Louis is proposing to settle some of Chicago's migrants, and the program would be funded primarily by private donors and would provide housing for up to three months, uh, cell phones, apprenticeship programs, job placement by, by the local unions there. Um, Melody, what are your thoughts to this potential idea, this this potential solution? I think it could definitely help um, un- unload a lot of the burden that, that Chicago has been um, uh, given from welcoming all of these, uh, you know, more than 18,000 now, uh, population of a small city in one, the third largest city in the country. Um, I, I think... Uh, I, j- I just hope that that these programs can be successful. Um, I know that you know here we have uh, there are aldermen that are that are trying to help migrants um, si- sign up for TPS and get those work permits, and that process unfortunately is is long. And so I think you know when we're thinking about like rental assistance and helping them get placed in jobs, is there uh, like something to help? Um, back them up if the process takes a little bit longer than three months. And that's a, that's a, what I think is top of mind for me. Yeah, I mean, I think part of their uh, their issue over there in St. Louis is they actually have to come up with those beds too, you know, mm-hmm. so they, they want to make sure that they don't create a homeless population out there. Monica, what were your reactions to the story? My reaction was that sounds like a, a much better plan than, let's say, for instance, Catholic Charities in San Antonio doing what they told me they do. They say, hey, if someone wants a bus ticket or a plane ticket to Chicago, we say, do you have a sponsor? And they say, yeah. And I said, do you check to make mm. sure that sponsor actually exists? Well, we don't really have the resources to do that. And what Christina Pazionizayas was finding was sometimes they would put down the address of a police station. If you have a program where you're actually coordinating it and saying, hey, someone in St. Louis, do you have a cell phone and a job and a bed for this person? That creates a much better situation for these people who are already traumatized by this trip. I mean, I'm afraid they're not getting the warmest welcome in Chicago. And one would hope that there would be some sort of organized way to give them a warm welcome in an area that needs workers and needs residents. Well, speaking of warm welcome, Monica, let's stay with you. You know, you said you, uh, you've you covered some uh, a story about how many local volunteers are collecting winter gear for arriving migrants. Tell us about that. Yeah, it seems like there are a whole bunch of organizations. I walked to my alderman's office the other day to get some uh, parking stickers and 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 uh, the 44th ward. Uh, they were accepting donations as well, though no clothes. Some places say we want 
lightly used clothing. Some places say no clothing. Hmm. Some places are looking for um, sanitary supplies for women or diapers or formula. So, I mean, you just have to Google it or go to an Axios story and you'll find several organizations that are working hard to find specific donations that are needed. Um, the city was telling me at one point, they're saying, please tell people to stop bringing stuff and dumping it at police stations because they can't handle it. So finding the right avenue for your donations can be very, very helpful to folks. And as we've seen, there's a resource shortage. So if you have a, a winter coat or like 20,000 pairs of gloves, which we seem to have in our house, someone could use those. Back now with more Reset and more of the weekly news recap. I'm Esther Yunji Kang in for Sasha Ann Simons, and we've got a panel of, panel of local journalists breaking down the biggest stories around Chicago and Illinois. Before the break, we got the latest on the asylum seekers who continue to arrive daily to Chicago, but there's more news to cover. The Chicago Board of Ethics ordered 45th Ward Alderman Jim Gardner to pay $20,000 in fines. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker is launching a nonprofit to protect and expand abortion rights. The symbolic Israel Solidarity Resolution meant to show support for Israel. It was drafted by the only Jewish person on Chicago City Council. We saw hundreds and hundreds of Palestinian Americans and their allies close streets downtown as they protested the deaths of civilians in Gaza. Mourners gathered at a mosque for prayer before the burial of a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy. He was fatally stabbed in his home in Illinois on Saturday. Here in the studio with us is Monica Eng, Chicago reporter for Axios, WTTW Chicago politics reporter Heather Sharon, and Melody Mercado, who covers the Loop, West Loop, River North, and Gold Coast for Block Club Chicago. Let's talk about the tragic story of the killing of a six-year-old Muslim boy from suburban Plainfield, Wadia Al-Fayoumi. It consumed much of the news this week, um, both locally and nationally and internationally, actually. Monica, for anyone who hasn't been following this, what are the details? On Saturday morning, um, it was reported uh, that uh, a 71-year-old landlord in Plainfield Township went down to his tenant's apartment and allegedly uh, stabbed a uh, mother and child, uh, fatally stabbing the child. And um, he was prosecuted. It's being prosecuted as a hate crime. Prosecutors said that he allegedly was listening to conservative talk radio and his wife said that he'd taken out a $1,000 because he was afraid the grid was going to go down. And um, and he was uh, afraid that his tenants were going to be violent. And this just, you know, shocked the entire community. You're right, national and international reverberations by Sunday. Uh, President Joe Biden was commenting on it. The Department of Justice had opened up an investigation. Just, just tragic. Yeah. And and here in the area, large crowds gathered for his funeral on Monday. Correct, Melody? Um, yes. And in, in result, uh, I mean... Huge, huge crowds, um, both mourning and, and, and calling for um, traditional media to uh, call out, you know, certain interpretations of um, how they feel that that Muslims and Palestinians are being portrayed in the media that they feel led to the death of this six year old boy. 
Heather, can you tell us, you know, even the federal government is looking into his death. Tell us about that. Well, Mer Attorney General Merrick Garland has launched a federal hate crime investigation into um, the, the boy's slaying. And we should say that his mother was also attacked, but is expected to survive. Um, and... Um, this is really the purview of the federal government. There are certainly, you know, local hate crime laws, but really the most serious, serious penalties can come from sort of federal hate crime. And I think that this is an indication that the Biden administration is taking the surge in hate crimes, not just against Muslims, but also Jews, very, very seriously um, as we all sort of struggle to process what's happening in Gaza and Israel and sort of the the looming specter of a ground invasion by Israel into Gaza and what that means in terms of the ongoing humanitarian crisis and sort of what the ultimate result will that all be. Um, but I think that, you know, there's nothing that, you know, sort of grabs people's attentions more than the, the murder of a child. Mm. And I think that the fact that we very quickly could see sort of pictures of his face and sort of realize that sort of, you know, these sort of huge geopolitical forces had sort of resulted in, you know, just the horrific slaying of, of you know, a boy so close to, to all of us. And I think it's, it's, it made sort of what was happening sort of visceral in a way that um, has made sort of the ongoing crisis even more difficult for people to um, sort of process. You know, I think that um, the fact that allegedly the, the accused murderer was concerned because there had been threats of a so-called day of rape age, um, I think, you know, it was not disconnected from the fact that the debate at the city council over a resolution su supporting Israel sort of turned not violent, but very emotional and very loud. And for the first time in recent memory, forced Mayor Brandon Johnson to clear the city council gallery because um, because of sort of repeated attempts to interrupt people who were speaking, particularly alderperson Alder Deborah Silverstein, who was the author of the resolution supporting Israel and is the only Jewish member of the city council. So I just it, it's just sort of been hard to sort of, I think, for everybody to realize that that there's just so much upset and hate and pain right now. And there's not, I think, really been a good way to process it. Yeah. Tell us a little more about that resolution. Well, so, you know, Alderman Silverstein introduced it uh, pretty much immediately and was met with pushback from Alderman Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez, who wanted the resolution to be amended to reflect that it's not just Israeli citizens that are sort of in the crossfire, but also Palestinian citizens living in Gaza have been sort of without water, without food, without medicine. Um, and on the very day that this debate took place, had been ordered by Israel, if you lived in the north of Gaza, that they had to move south. And um, Alderman Rodriguez-Sanchez wanted the resolution to sort of reflect that um, while Hamas is a terrorist group, um, all Palestinians are certainly not members of Hamas and should not be punished for the actions of Hamas. Alderman Silverstein said, 
Um, I don't disagree with that, but this resolution is designed to sort of mourn the deaths of Jews and the most horrific violence that their community has suffered since the Holocaust, she said. And she said, so we can deal with sort of the larger issues another time, but this this is just focused on this. And it was, was very controversial. And um, I think that while it ultimately passed with only alderperson Rodriguez Sanchez voting against it, I think that it was a more nuanced discussion about sort of the impact that you know sort of the whole israeli-palestinian crisis has had than i've seen in, in in recent years yeah i mean you just really see the reverberations of what's happening abroad here and you know melody um there have been repeated protests downtown can you update us yes so um you know wednesday uh, there was a protest in Chicago's Federal Plaza and in front of the Israeli consulate in support of of Palestinians um, in Palestine and in Gaza. You know, we're now at a point where more than 4,000 Palestinians um, have died uh, since uh, October 7th, I believe. Um, and in addition to that, um, since sort of the seize on Gaza, nearly 7,000 Palestinians have died since 2008, leading up to the conflict that we are now, everyone's talking about now. Um, and they've been calling for the end of what they're, they're saying is the collective punishment that, that Israel has been inflicting on Palestinians and are calling for, uh, you know, the city, the United States to support a ceasefire so that much needed humanitarian aid can safely enter the Gaza Strip and help people that um, unfortunately are, are still stuck there. Um, seeking refuge in hospitals um, and things of that nature. This is the third protest in a week organized by Chicago Coalition for Justice in in Palestine. And again, they've continued to hold space downtown along Michigan Avenue near, you know, large parts of Chicago. And they've seen thousands and thousands of people show up um, in support of this. Well, staying with you, you know, last night in his address to the nation, President Biden warned against anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Yesterday, Melody, the Illinois Comptroller's Office fired one of their attorneys over some social media messages. What do we know? Yes, we know that um, this attorney had been with the Comptroller's Office for uh, three years um, and that in an exchange in private um, DMs um, with a with a with a Instagram um, page and I'm, I'm blanking on the name. Oh, Big Law Boys is what the name was um, over uh, and uh, some anti-Semitic comics that she made replying to a story on that page. And again, these are some of the messages that were exchanged. Quote, all of you Zionists will pay and made some references to 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 Hitler and um, some very thing dangerous things and and that I'm not going to say on the air here. But um, yeah, that that woman was uh, fired, uh, quote, immediately from the, the comptroller's office. And Comptroller Mendoza released a statement saying that she had been fired and that the office has zero tolerance for anti-Semitism or speech or hate speech of any kind. Um, and she then reconfirmed her support for Israel and, quote, their right to defend themselves. Wow. Oh. Well, Monica, um, another topic uh, out of uh, city council, defense lawyers for disgraced former alderman Ed Burke are concerned about some comments that he made. Can you explain? Uh, these were, I believe, 2021 uh, statements that he made about uh, some clients uh, that he would like to have at the uh, post office uh, location. And um, 
and they they the the prosecution contends that they are very relevant to the case. Uh, defense says they would be overly prejudicial, especially in this time of um, heightened uh, sensitivity about the Israel-Hamas war, that these allegedly anti-Semitic statements should not be admissible because they would prejudice the jury too much at this sensitive time. Um, and so they're they're duking it out right now and deciding whether or not these these statements, you know, what, what the prosecution says is this shows the quid pro quo that we are trying to demonstrate here. And it does have racial overtones or religious overtones, but we think it's so important to show the, the, the pay for play that seems to mm. be at play here. Well, just uh, staying with you, you know, you wrote about the Hamas attack and how it's impacting local newsrooms around the country, including the Chicago Tribune. Tell us more about that. Well, it appears that all 65 Alden-owned newspapers, including the Chicago Tribune, uh, were compelled to run the very same editorial on the same day that um, that encourages news media and people in general to violate um, AP standards, BBC standards, uh, and that would be they, they encourage people to call Hamas a terrorist group, to call their actions terrorist actions. Um, the AP style says, call their actions terrorist actions you can say that other governments classify them as a terrorist group but we don't and we believe it's a politicized thing to do to call them a terrorist group uh the alden um executives in their publishing branch felt like that is not something they want to do and they wanted to encourage everybody to call them a terrorist group and so uh they I have on pretty good authority, and my colleague Sarah Fisher, who's our media reporter at Axios, has on good authority that they were all told, you must run this. And in the Denver Post and in the uh, New York Daily News, it says, by the Denver Post editorial board, and it says, by the New York Post editorial board. Really? On the very same day you guys wrote the exact same thing? What a mind meld that is. But Chicago Tribune. Chicago, we did not. We, I'm no longer with the <laughs> Tribune. In Chicago, it was run on the editorial page, underneath the editorials, and it said at the bottom, Tribune, sorry, Tribune Publishing and uh, News Media Group. Uh, so I think... I think in Chicago, a, a greater distinction was made. Eric Zorn said, at least it didn't look like we were ventriloquists for um, all, uh, the hedge fund kings. Uh, we're going to pivot a little bit here um, over to Governor Pritzker, who's launching a nonprofit aimed at p- protecting abortion rights. Melody, tell us the details. Yes, um, you know, Governor Pritzker still hasn't acknowledged whether or not he would throw his hat in the ring to run for president, but he did launch this national um, new organization called Think Big America. It's a 501c4, and Think Big America, its its sole sort of mission here is safeguarding reproductive rights and standing up for the, quote, right-wing extremists who want to take us backwards. Um, now, Pritzker is the sole funder for for Think Big America. We don't exactly know how much money he's put into the organization, um, but we do know that this new organization's initial focus will be Arizona, Ohio, um, and Nevada. And um, that, you know, this is really 
his his way of of uh, hoping to make waves um, across the country mm-hmm. and something that he says he's been fighting for, you know, for his whole career, which is um, protecting women's rights. Now, is he using his own money? Uh, yes. Yes, he is. Um, and he he has very deep pockets, as we know. He is, you know, a billionaire. So, um, yeah. Right. Heather, tell us a little more about those uh, sort of making waves, that aspect that Melody just talked about. Does he have national political aspirations? Oh, sure. You know, so you um, don't become governor, really, if you don't think you couldn't become president at some point, right? Um, and I think Governor Pritzker was elected, you know, in, you know, and reelected overwhelmingly and has really sort of found his voice um, on the national political stage as a more pugilistic, more progressive, younger sort of alternative to sort of the the center of the party occupied by Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. And what's interesting about this um, sort of new political operation is that he is essentially offering himself up as a force multiplier for the Biden campaign. So there's no doubt that abortion uh, and reproductive rights are going to be front and center in the 2024 presidential election. And this will give uh, Democrats sort of a uh, almost entirely unfettered funding source to amplify those message and to contest these sort of issues in swing states like Arizona and Georgia and Wisconsin, which will likely determine who the next president of the United States is. And by doing this, Pritzker gets sort of two bonuses. He keeps his name in the air, we're all talking about him, as mm-hmm. all politicians like. Um, but he also sort of racks up chits with other Democrats, because if he helps, let's say, a Democrat win um, a Senate seat in Arizona or maintain a Senate seat in Wisconsin, he, those people will take his calls in 2028, he hopes, when Joe Biden is finishing his second term in office and there is an open Democratic primary for president, which will give him um, sort of the ability to call people and say, hey, how you been? Remember when I helped you four years ago? <laughs> now it's my turn. And that is sort of the how you lay the groundwork for a national political campaign. Now, if you talk to Governor Pritzker, I'm sure if he were sitting right here, he would say, Heather, I love being governor of Illinois. I <laughs> want nothing more than to serve the people of Illinois. And I do not doubt his sincerity, but he has also proven to be an ambitious politician who I think has impressed a lot of people with his skills in a way that I I don't think you would have anticipated when he was first on sort of the statewide political scene. Well, we have just uh, time for one more question right now. Um, Heather, tell me about 45th Ward Alderman Jim Gardner. He was given a $20,000 fine. That's pretty hefty. What happened? It is. So back in 2019, Chicago Inspector General Deborah Wisberg found that he uh, inappropriately sought to fine one of his political critics for having an overgrown yard with weeds, which is illegal in the city of Chicago. But it turns out that this man, Pete Sosniska, didn't have weeds. He had a rain garden that was lovingly and purposefully cultivated. Had he paid these fines, it would have cost him in the neighborhood of $600. So the inspector general investigated, well, why did city workers haul off and find this guy? And it turned out that she developed evidence that the alderman 
pointed at this 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 resident and said, hey, go find this guy because I don't like what he's saying about me on Facebook. And so now he is the first sitting alder person to have been found probably responsible for violating the governmental ethics ordinance and then received the maximum fine, which was $2,000 in 2019 for 10 violations of that um, of that loss. Now, I should say, Alderman Gardner, um, it pains me to admit, I don't think is a big fan of me or the news media and has not returned my phone calls about mm. this. He does have the opportunity to appeal those decisions to the Board of Ethics, and then he can sue over those fines in Cook County Circuit Court. So this is probably not the last we've heard of this. Um, I will add that it's not been a great month for Alderman Gardner. Uh, earlier this month, a federal judge found he violated uh, the um, some residents' First Amendment rights by blocking them from his official Facebook page, and the city paid $100,000 to a man who said he was wrongfully arrested at the request of Alderman Gardner. This is Reset. I'm Esther Yunji Kang and for Sasha Ann Simons, and we're back with more of our weekly news recap, giving you a closer look at the week's top stories across Chicago and Illinois. Before the break, we got the latest on how the situation in the Middle East is impacting us here in Chicago, but we still have more to get to. Our panelists today are Monica Eng of Axios, Melody Mercado of Block Club Chicago, and Heather Sharon of WTTW. Heather, the agency in charge of evaluating police misconduct closed several cases this week. What were the findings? Um, so they closed almost 500 cases in the past three months of as part of what uh, Chief Administrator Andrea Kirsten is calling the Timeliness Initiative. So these are all cases that are at least 18 months old that do not concern significant um, allegations of misconduct. So there are no use of force complaints or sort of civil rights violations here. Um, and uh, Andrea Kirsten told me that essentially there's really no chance of getting significant dif- discipline in these cases. And while at the same time it really bogs down the agency's operations and it makes it impossible for them to um, investigate more serious, more recent allegations of misconduct. So through this initiative, which is supposed to last through the end of the year, they want to sort of clear the agency's backlog, which is already down nearly 40 percent, and sort of give it a fresh start and allow it to sort of start working and work more quickly on um, recent complaints. And I think a good indication of the way that they want the complaints to work is the investigation that they just completed into allegations of sexual misconduct by officers at police stations involving the migrants. Now, they've never found any evidence that any of that misconduct occurred. They never found a witness. They never found anybody who made those allegations directly. It was all second and third hand. So they closed that that investigation within just a couple of months of it being opened, which is truly unprecedented for the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, or COPA. So uh, they have been under sort of significant um, and sustained, you know, sort of criticism that complaints take forever to be adjudicated. And this is them really trying to free up the manpower and the ability to address those head on. Well, what was the reaction to those cases being closed? Well, I think that the city council was pleased to hear that the backlog is sort of being reduced because it will sort of hopefully give the agency more of an ability to be nimble 
and fast acting. I think that, uh, however, you know, it, there are frustrations that these cases essentially w- resulted in complaints where there was at least some evidence of wrongdoing, and there there essentially won't be any sort of sort of, you know. A sort of corrective action taken. And if you've spent as much time as I have looking at sort of the police misconduct system in Chicago, you will come away with the conclusion that it is very difficult, if not impossible, to hold officers accountable for misconduct, even when there's direct evidence of it. And Andrea Kirsten said, look, this is not great. I acknowledge that, but it's the best we can do. And we sort of have to uh, think outside the box if we are going to create a functioning accountability system for officers. Well, we're going to steer this conversation about the police from Chicago over to Northwest Suburban Des Plaines, where a big settlement was handed over to a young guitarist. Melody, what are the details there? Um, actually, or, um, I'm sorry, Monica. What was what I've are been the up on that story. Um, the guitarist uh, Rylan Weiler, a 19-year-old boy, got 1.9 million dollars in the settlement. He was just a 15-year-old kid at a Northwest Side Arts and Music place about four years ago, kind of doing his thing when a displays police officer who was chasing a bank robber uh, accidentally shot him and shattered his arm. Uh, he's gone through dozens of surgeries. Uh, the good news is it looks like he's still going to be able to play guitar. His dream of being a virtuoso guitar player may still happen. But um, he, he and his mom say that, you know, they still can remember that terror when they hear a police siren, mm. when they hear an ambulance. And, you know, it's no doubt an absolutely harrowing experience for him. But the settlement came this week, $1.9 million. And I'll just jump in if I can. So they're going to pay $1.9 million. This is displays police to this kid's family. Now, the officers that were involved in the shooting were cleared of wrongdoing. So I think that gives you a sense of it's just not just a Chicago problem in holding officers accountable for misconduct, but this is a sort of a wide ranging issue because you would think that if you're an officer who did something that led to a $2 million payout, you would face some sort of disciplinary action, but that is rarely, if ever, the case. And that, I think, is one of the big problems that... um, you know, sort of efforts to reform police policing in general in the Chicago Police Department in particular have have run into. And this is not a Chicago case, but there are dozens of Chicago cases just like it. Well, turning to something very different, uh, Chicago has launched its first composting program. Monica, how will this work? Well, there are 15 sites all over the city, and I like to call it the Monica Eng composting program since I have been bugging the streets and sanitation for the last 15 years. Every time they see me, oh, you're going to ask about composting, right? Um, well, there are 15 sites across the city where you can sign up and bring your food scraps. By weight, about 20% of our garbage is compostable organic waste. So this could be a huge game changer if people just sign up and bring their stuff. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds like a pain in the neck and the stuff can get stinky and you can get fruit flies in your house and then your boyfriend can like scream at you. I know it. I've been there. But it can really help. I mean, New York City, New York City is launching a 
you know, entire citywide, all five boroughs collection program. I think like where they're going to come to your house to collect it. I think we can do a drop off program. So just in the name of Mother Earth, I'm asking everybody, please sign up for this. Come on. Their apple cores, your, your carrot peels, you can bring them all there and they'll be turned into beautiful compost. Is New York the only other city? Oh, my God. San Francisco. Okay. The Bay Area has <laughs> been doing it forever. Olympia, Washington, Portland, Seattle. Every civilized place does it. <laughs> so the signups have only been available for less than a week at this point, and already 1,600 people have signed okay, up to nice. participate in the, the program. I will just note that it is not, I think, um, unrelated to the fact that the Commissioner of Streets and Sanitation faced his annual budget hearing today, um, and this program was announced just days before <laughs> he sat in that hot seat, knowing that he was going to face questions uh, about why doesn't the city compost and how could we be behind New York, which can't even figure out how dumpsters work in terms <laughs> of composting. But the fact of the matter is, is that Chicago's recycling rate has been stuck at 9% for the past five years, which is an insanely low level of recycling. And city officials really see composting as sort of a way to boost that recycling rate in a way that other efforts has just not been successful. I mean, they always tell me, Monica, we can't get people to recycle properly. How are we going to get them to <laughs> compost? And I said, well, let's start a pilot, mm. you know? Well, another change could be coming to Chicago to one of its most iconic buildings, and it involves Google. Melody, will you go ahead and tell us what's happening to the Thompson Center? Yes. Um, the Thompson Center, which was uh, bought by Google, um, is going to be transformed into um, offices for thousands of workers. For The the question for the longest time is, what are they going to do with that glass facade? Um, can they remodel it uh, without changing it? And then there's been a lot of questions about, is that... <laughs> I mean, it's a glass dome. It gets very hot in the summer. It gets very cold in the winter. And so as a result, um, the permits were just approved to actually remove that glass facade. I believe it was $6 million um, to take that down. Uh, it, but it's a sign that things will be moving along over at the Thompson Center, which um, last time I checked, the remodeling is supposed to be done by sometime in 2026. Um, and so it, it's sort of a sign that things are like picking up pace there. Um, and, you know, I, I'm looking forward to see, well, what are they going to what are they going to do if it's not yeah. going to? Are they glass. still going to have a Sparrow in the basement? I know. Can <laughs> I still question. get pizza Moni there? Monica, um, for those struggling with their Halloween lights and decorations, we have some scary news involving Super an arsonist. Scary. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, on the northwest side, there's some person, I don't want to say dude or lady, but some person who has been lighting hay bales on fire Yikes. Um, that are part of people's Halloween decorations. Around 3 or 4 in the morning, um, there have already been about four incidents so far. And it's making people nervous because, as you know, a lot of people put their stuff out um, and it's making people maybe reconsider hay bales. But you know, like, is it someone who just doesn't like Halloween? It's, it's unclear. But, you know, people want to feel safe putting those skeletons out there mm -hmm. um, and not feel like they're going to be the target of an arsonist. That's Monica Eng of Axios, Melody Mercado of Block Club Chicago, and Heather Sharon of WTTW. Thanks so much for joining us, and have a great weekend, guys. You too, Thanks. Esther. Thank you.